electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. 3D printing. It's been hyped as the next big thing in manufacturing for, well, years. But thanks to the pandemic and supply chain crunches, the technology, also known as additive manufacturing, is gaining traction and faster, especially in aerospace. It's basically Silicon Valley went to space. So when you have this innovation and speed is the number one driver, you need manufacturing technology that allows you to innovate very quickly and that allows you to innovate much more deeply than was possible before. And this is why we see space as the front runner and the, as the frontier of the adoption of 3D printing. Velo3D founder and CEO Benny Bowler has pioneered an approach that's garnered business from the likes of Elon Musk's SpaceX and more recently Lockheed Martin. Much like the innovative strides taken in the space sector, Velo3D is developing new capabilities that, up until now, were deemed by some to be impossible. I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is Manifest Space. Benny Buller is the founder and CEO of Velo3D, a materials company that went public in 2021 and specializes in additive manufacturing, or 3D printing, with a book of customers spanning the space industry. What we do is Velo provides an end-to-end manufacturing solution for <laughs> metal 3D printing, um, which includes uh, software, hardware, um, quality control, and the manufacturing process underlining all of that. And what is unique about uh, our manufacturing solution is it enables uh, our customers to produce the parts that they really wanted and that for many years were considered impossible to do either by 3D printing or by any other manufacturing technology. So uh, 3D printing has actually been quite limited in its ability to produce the parts people really wanted um, for uh, aerospace and uh, uh, we uh, enabled uh, much broadening of these capabilities. Yeah. So I want to get into all of that, because especially uh, the, this idea of you being able to kind of do what was, at least until now, considered impossible, this idea of basically customizing the 3D printing process according to designs and what customers want. Um, but just in general, when we talk about the economics around 3D printing, when you, when you are able to crack the code, what are we talking about in terms of cost savings, time savings, and what that does to, say, the building of, for example, a rocket? When you think about uh, rockets as an example, the rockets, the rocket engines is the most uh, sciencey, if you want, part in a rocket. It's the most technologically advanced, the most complex part in a, of a rocket. And there have been improvements in the last decade uh, tremendous improvements in the efficiency and the reusability of those uh, rockets. Uh, if you recall, just a decade ago, the idea of a reusable engine or reusable rocket was a fantasy. Uh, now it's beca- it became a reality. Um, so uh, rockets uh, have dropped dramatically in the cost to launch to space. And uh, <clears throat> uh, 3D printing allows those companies 
to build the engines much quicker, much uh, cheaper, and iterate much faster. So they were able to develop and uh, test new ideas in a way that would previously would take them decades uh, over a period of uh, literally two, three years. And uh, if you look at some of the companies we have been working with, they succeeded on a shoestring budget, two, three million dollars in a few years to build a new rocket engine. This is unheard of, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, but that's all enabled by 3D printing technology. That's pretty incredible. So when you think about that, like building out a new rocket engine with just a couple of millions of dollars, I mean, that speaks to, I guess, the value proposition around 3D printing and, and just how dramatic the drop in cost is associated with it. So what does that mean in terms of your business model? How do you actually go about designing 3D printing capabilities for some of these customers, for some of these complex parts that up until now were not able to be manufactured this way? So a lot of our customers are customers that have uh, worked with 3D printing before and that basically pushed the limitations of the existing technology all the way to its limit. And uh, they have needs. They know exactly what they want to do, but they cannot do this. So when we engage with these companies, what we find is that uh, most of those companies actually do not want to uh, bring the manufacturing capability in-house. They want parts, they don't want systems. They don't want to produce the systems, they want the parts. If you think about our economy in general, the devices that which we, on which we are talking, uh, whether it's a Dell or an Apple, are not produced by those companies. Someone else is making almost everything for them. This is true for all of our economy. Uh, the idea of outsourcing, the idea of specialization has become so prevalent. So the same happens in mechanical engineering and manufacturing. And uh, companies want to work with specialized suppliers that know the art and the science and the technology and the practice of uh, manufacturing really well, and they want to get parts from them. So big part of what we have been doing is establishing a very uh, scalable and diverse network of contract manufacturers that are using our technology and those suppliers uh, produce the parts for the end customers. So we have an organization that works with the uh, end customers, helping them, advising them on their applications, making sure that they know how to leverage our manufacturing technology to make the best products. But then we are working with the contract manufacturers as the actual customers that buy the machines. <coughs> and we are helping them and teaching them how to use them. And we are bringing this business of the OEMs that want the parts made on our machines to those contract manufacturers. We are not charging anything for this because all those applications are applications that can only be produced on our systems. So when we bring this demand, we know that those uh, contract manufacturer customers will be able to produce these parts, will be successful in their business, and they will order more machines from us. And indeed, uh, all those contract manufacturers are ordering more and more machines from us and they are building their fleets and they are becoming real experts in the utilization of this technology. It almost reminds me of the semiconductor industry. So then you're making money on the designs, you're making money on the IP. Is that how to think about this? And the fact that there's this, um, not the machines and the hardware itself, but basically the fact that there's going to be a regular revenue stream associated with those designs that you help craft? 
you, you know, your analogy to semiconductor is precisely right. So when you look at semiconductor, 30 years ago, there were tens of semiconductor manufacturing companies. Today, there are five. Uh, so the world has consolidated. There are, on the other hand, thousands and tens of thousands companies that make semiconductor chips. How do they make those chips? They make them through someone else. There is a founder mm -hmm. that makes the chips for them that consolidated this knowledge that has the economy of scale. So in our case, we work with these OEMs that have the designs and uh, when they produce with the contract manufacturing network, they produce on our manufacturing solution and we are getting paid uh, through the utilization of the technology. One thing that is really important to mention, we do not take IP rights in the actual product that okay. is being developed, right? This is the IP of the customer. Mm -hmm. However, in some of the business models that we are operating with the customers, uh, and many contract manufacturers like that, we sell the machines at a lower cost, but then the customer, the contract manufacturer pays us uh, royalties for every hour that the machine is printing. So there is this continuous revenue stream of royalties, but the royalties is not associated with the end product. It is associated it. with the use of the manufacturing process. Wow, it's fascinating. It's definitely it's it, it's definitely a different business model than the one I've heard about at least up until now, where three D printing is concerned. I mean, aerospace and space companies in particular, like rocket companies, um, have been some of the earliest adopters of three D printing technologies. Why do you think that's been the case? And I mean, in this day and age of this new commercially driven space race, I mean. Is it just, is it, is it the norm now or does it have to be the norm if you want to compete? If you look at what happened in the last decade uh, in uh, the space and, and the launch industry is uh, this has become one of the most entrepreneurial industrial arenas. So uh, since the 60s until about 2010, the space world has been dominated by government. In the last 10 years, we have an explosion of entrepreneurial uh, second space race. This entrepreneurial space race has created many very agile, very dynamic, very innovative companies that just are colorblind and do not recognize the color of red tape. They just break everything. They break any practice. They are trust trying new things. They are very innovative. They, are, uh, uh, they will not stop uh, it against difficulties. And speed is the number one criterion there. It's the number one driver. <laughs> it's basically Silicon Valley uh, went to space. So when you have this innovation and speed is the number one driver, you need manufacturing technology that allows you to innovate very quickly and that allows you to innovate much more deeply than was possible before. And this is why we see space as the front runner and the, as the frontier of the adoption of 3D printing, not because <clears throat> the technology is more usable to space than it is to, let's say, aviation or than it is to energy or that it is to power generation, but because space is so entrepreneurial, because it's so dynamic these days. So as space is uh, breaking uh, through this, we are seeing other places that are adopting 3D printing in a similar way and again, in many of those industries, the people that are moving faster are the most innovative, 
the most entrepreneurial, but the density of entrepreneurship and innovation in space today is much bigger than in any of the other sectors that I mentioned. Mm, it's it's fascinating. And certainly the other sectors you mentioned are ones that you're targeting and, and starting to cultivate customers in. Um, how'd you come up with the idea for this company? What's the origin? There, there are two steps on this. The first step is, uh, so I, I'm a product development person. I, I, I did product development all my career. And then for two years, I was an investor. And, and when I was an investor, I actually saw a lot of uh, pitches for 3D printing companies. And I decided that I will never invest in a 3D printing company. And uh, <laughs> yes, uh, true story. And, uh, and the reason is because all of them had the same uh, pitch exactly. This is a great technology. It works. It's perfect. The only thing that you needed is to reduce a cost. And here is a way to reduce the cost by 30%. And everyone was talking about that. And when you're an investor, you know, this is a really bad idea to invest in something like that. Because when everyone is trying to reduce cost, no one is going to make money in the process. Right? It's a race to the bottom. What I stumbled upon is a, completely by coincidence is I saw a demonstration of how limited is the capability of the manufacturing technology. So then I started to talk with end users of the technology and try to understand how limiting is the fact that this manufacturing technology is so uh, constrained in its capabilities. And I started to ask very naive questions like, what are the things that are most limiting you? What are the things that are most painful to you about this technology? And no one told me that the fact that the technology is limited is painful. That's not what people talked about. People talked about, you know, the technology is too expensive, the technology is too slow, the material properties are not very good, but no one was talking about the fact that it actually cannot do the things that they want it to do. So <laughs> when I asked people about this, they said, well, uh, of course it's very limited, but there's nothing you can do about this. This is how it has been for 20 years and there has been no improvement in this. So it's kind of like when you ask people, about the reasons that they are overweight. No one tells you, well, it's one of the reasons I'm overweight is because uh, gravity is too high. Uh, it's like gravity is just a law of nature. You cannot, you cannot do anything about this. That's what people told me. So one of my decisive moments was a visit into SpaceX. That was before the company was founded. That is before they were a customer. And I sat with a, a, a large group of engineers and uh, I asked them, so how problematic is for you these limitations? And they said, look, about 70% of our parts, we print the way we need them, no problem. First shot, we get the part that we need. About 20 to 25% of our part, we need to iterate them a few times until we succeed to get what we need. And we compromise the part to the point that we get what we need. It's like, okay. And then only 5% of the part, we work on them up to three months, and then we have to give up. So I wrote in my notebook in Hebrew, because that was easier to me at that time, for this customer, overcoming the limitations of the technology is of marginal value. And as I was writing this in my notebook, one of the engineers on the other side of the room, he couldn't read the Hebrew, he couldn't uh, see my notebook. And he said, but you have to understand, we have been doing 3D printing in metals and printing rocket parts for almost a decade. We know exactly what will print and what will not print. So the reason why we have this distribution is because we avoid the designs that will not print. 
And the reason why we have 5% of the parts that we cannot make is because those parts are so valuable to us that we are willing to spend three months to try to break them. And every time someone thinks maybe they have a new idea how to make them, and we spend three months and then we give up on that. But he said, had we had the capability to make this 5% of parts, 100% of our parts would be in this category. Hmm. That's a very different answer than what I wrote in my book. <laughs> hmm. Right? So I said, wait a second. So then I went and I now I knew the, the question that I needed to ask. So then I went and asked again the people that I was talking with. And now the answers came back differently. So then I said, okay, I have no idea how exactly I'm going to solve this problem, but this is what we are going to do. So this was the Mordor story. I don't know the way to Mordor, but I will take the ring there. So, <laughs> so this started really with a, with this sit down with the engineers at SpaceX. Are you so this five percent of parts? Have you cracked the code for them? Yeah. So not only did we crack the code of the five percent, but now the entirety of their portfolio of 3D printed parts is designed around our capability and really? around what we can do. So we we so our story in SpaceX was that we cracked the code for the one or two most critical parts that they really needed, but they were never able to do. And when we were successful with that, they said, okay, now let's redesign the other parts so that they take advantage of the Velo3D technology. And now those parts are designed so they take advantage of our technology, allowing them much higher performance than they were able to do before. And that's the success of our customers with using this technology. So first, they try the one or two things that they absolutely have no other way that this is so dramatic. And once they do that, they say, okay, we can improve now everything else. And this is big part of what enables the Raptor engine, the performance that it accomplished. That's really interesting. And of course, I, I remember when the deal was, because Velo3D is publicly traded, um, you went public via SPAC uh, in 2021. I remember when that deal was announced with Barry Stern, like SPAC. Um, he came on CNBC and he said uh, that part of what caught his eye about Velo3D was the fact that Elon Musk was interested in buying the company <laughs> uh, and you turned him down. Uh, so uh, what's, what, what strikes me is the fact that at least historically speaking, SpaceX has always been known as a company that kind of does everything very vertically integrated from a manufacturing standpoint, uh, will reverse engineer parts, um, bring it all in-house. So um, is not necessarily considered an acquisitive company. Um, so the fact that they would be pursuing you to buy your technology, buy your business model, buy your company, I think is uh, pretty telling. Uh, the context is, as I mentioned, this is an enabling technology to make disruptively better engines mm -hmm. faster and bring them to market much faster than was possible before. And uh, Elon, being the very innovative leader that he is, you know, it wasn't lost on him. Uh, for us, from our perspective, uh, we see value in what we are doing, not just in the space industry but also in other industries. In, in those industries, uh, the adoption curve is slower because we don't have innovators like Elon driving the whole industry forward. Uh, so the adoption is slower, but the uh, societal impact huge, right? So whether it's the ability to dramatically reduce the 
footprint of uh, flight, right? The carbon footprint of flight, whether it's the ability to uh, reduce the time that you're spending in airplanes in a, in a dramatic way, whether it's the uh, ability to make uh, power, uh, natural gas power turbines uh, much more efficient and uh, uh, reduce the carbon footprint of our electricity, reduce the carbon footprint of extracting oil and gas, you know, a very significant portion of the carbon footprint of the oil and gas industry is not the burning of the gas, it's the production of the gas, the extraction of that, right? So if you can make that more efficient, you know, while we are converting our economy to a more sustainable, renewable economy, we can operate in this transition, and which is a decades-long transition on a more sustainable carbon footprint. So there are tremendous societal impacts here uh, that, that we believe that we can help um, create and, and, and uh, help deploy. And we want to be part of that. Uh, I didn't mention the, our uh, opportunity in semiconductor industry. So the semiconductor is, industry is an industry where a lot of the parts that are defining the processes and the capabilities that will define the chips that you'll be able to do in two years and three years and four years from now, uh, rely on very sophisticated parts that we are now enabling to make that previously were not possible to make. So this is another area where we see very large opportunity of additive manufacturing and 3D printing to, to make a, a, a change in the future. Hmm. So from an investor standpoint, I mean, this is an ESG play is what you're telling me. Um, how about autos? I mean, are you working with a company like Tesla, speaking of Elon? Uh, we cannot talk about this <laughs> you know, unless we get their permission. Uh, but <laughs> yes, uh, auto is also an interesting uh, field of application. Uh, I, I always like to say, uh, it's important to explain that. If you think about bringing cars to market, very significant cost, part of the cost of cars is actually not in the parts themselves but in the tooling that produces those parts. And the tooling that produces the parts is actually a fantastic opportunity for 3D printing. So uh, for example, I'll just give you an idea. Uh, people uh, cast parts, people injection mold parts for in very large volumes, you need the molds that make those. And the molds that make those can be 3D printed, can take huge advantages of 3D printing. So uh, in cars, the application field is not the actual parts, it's the tools that make the parts. And, and the reason why this is important uh, to explain is 3D printing is a relatively high value add technology. So what I mean by value add is the parts that you get at the end are significantly more expensive than the raw materials that go into these parts. When you are making cars, you do not have the luxury to, to use high value add manufacturing technology. When you look at the cost of a car, because of the very high volume in which it's made, the parts are extremely low value add. You're using manufacturing technologies that are extremely cheap by nature and 3D printing is not it. So 3D printing can be used as a way to make the tools that would make very low cost parts because you can invest in the tools. Because hmm. if, by, if, if your tools are better and the result is that you can produce the parts faster, okay, now you can make cheaper parts, even if the tool is more expensive. Yeah. 
And I guess that also speaks to why you've seen such strong adoption of this type of technology in something like aerospace and space specifically, where you're not making millions of rockets a year. Um, you're making uh, considerably fewer, um, but they also need to be able to perform under extreme pressure and extreme duress. Um, okay, so the materials that go into 3D printing, because I know it's special types of alloys, and um, and that process has been kind of a chemistry experiment, at least until recently, too. Um, how, how do you approach that? In many of the industries we operate, whether it's space, uh, you know, aerospace, energy, uh, the qualification of a new material takes decades. Uh, we are very fortunate today that we live in an area in an era where we leverage experience of decades and sometimes centuries of engineering with known materials. So the approach that we took is that all the materials that we are uh, producing today are materials that uh, the world has decades and sometimes centuries experience producing those materials and they know the world knows extremely well the properties we should expect from those materials so these are not new materials these are materials that are produced in a new way but it's the same material that has been known for a very long time there is an opportunity to create new material new materials that would allow even better uh, benefits but the adoption of those materials will be very slow. So when you add to new products, new manufacturing technology, when you add to that new materials, uh, the result is even slower curve of adoption. So from our perspective, uh, this is not an area that we uh, decided to innovate, but some of our customers are innovating that. So some of the materials that we produce today for our customers are materials that they invented and we developed manufacturing recipes for them. But this is a relatively small portion of our business. Okay. And just in terms of the growth trajectory of the company as well, I mean, you, you emerged, Velo3D emerged from stealth in, what, 2018? Um, you went public last year in 2021. I mean, it's a very fast trajectory. Company's still pretty small from a revenue standpoint, but I realize growing double-digit percentages right now. Why did you decide to go public now? And I guess... Now that you are the CEO and founder of a publicly traded company, has that changed the way you're, the way you're developing or strategizing at Velo3D? A lot of things changed. You know, you mentioned double digits. It's actually not double digits anymore. So our growth this year is planned to be more than 250%. So, well. So that's uh, that's you know triple digits, right? Uh, and uh, and it's it's even much more much more than double, right? So the the way we are going from you know give or take twenty six million dollar a year revenue to almost hundred million dollar a year revenue in one year, I have a tremendous backlog of systems that our existing customers as well as new customers have booked in two thousand twenty one. Many of them depend on a new system that we introduced to the market which is a scale-up solution for our customers. So scale-up in the sense that it allows the use of exactly the same manufacturing technology that we developed, exactly the same uh, capabilities, but it allows them to make it much cheaper and much faster than what we did in our first system. So uh, uh, it does in parallel more of what we did 
with our first system. So as you know, a lot of companies are selling a product that they don't have, and they are selling a future that relies on one day we are going to have this project, this fantastic product. We have demand for this product. Um, this is very attractive. Well, the thing that we are very proud of is we committed to SpaceX that we are going to deliver the first system in Q4 of 2021. We committed to our investors that we'll deliver the first system in Q4 of 2021, and we did that. Uh, the week before Christmas, uh, the, the, the day before Christmas, we actually delivered the first system to SpaceX, um, and the system is already uh, printing right now the first parts uh, there. So uh, the, the, the uh, much faster than we actually, we brought it up much faster than we actually planned. For us, it's a really important moment because the demand that we reported that we have going into 2022 is now not just demand. We now have the supply to provide that. So we actually can deliver the revenue that we plan to do. So you asked me, how does it feel to be the CEO of a public company? What is different? And uh, one thing that is tremendously different is that uh, in 2021, we strategically were very focused on market adoption, on technology adoption. So getting as many customers to as many users and getting the market uh, work with the systems. As we are a public company, the market is not only caring about the adoption of systems in the in the marketplace they also want to see revenue so now this is a wall-to-wall war door-to-door -door war every quarter every week we close revenue we meet the numbers that we had so we we were very good in the first quarter that we reported uh, i'm not going to tell you today how the second quarter that we are going to report will look uh, but we are an extremely execution-oriented company. Uh, we only promise to do things that we know exactly how we're going to do. And when we uh, promise them, we actually make it uh, a, a big deal for us to make it and to, to deliver that. So we have delivered until now. The Sephorexia delivery was a very important milestone for us, and uh, our fantastic team uh, delivered that. And I'm very proud of uh, how they did this. So this has been... Uh, this has been great. So the last portion of the question that you asked is why did we decide to go public? And the answer is actually extremely trivial for that. If you think about what we are doing, we are allowing customers to do things that they couldn't do before. And if you look at what SpaceX did and the audacity of what they did, right, is they basically took a startup from Silicon Valley that had at any given moment in its life, not much more than six months of runway before we go bankrupt. And they basically built their flagship product, their, the future of the company on a manufacturing technology that there was only one very fragile supplier to provide them. And that kind of shows you the, the nerve and the innovation that this company has to take risk. I have, I'm really proud to say that we never failed them but I can also tell you that we work with quite a few companies that looked at us and said, before I buy your machine, I want to know what's your runway. Oh, you have eight months of runway now? No. What if you're going to go bankrupt? Who is going to support me then? What if I want in three years, five machines? Are you going to be there to supply me these machines? So for us, 
having a fat, stable balance sheet, having a future that anyone can open and know that we are there to stay is tremendous to allow all these companies that are not led by Elon Musk to take the risk. And it's make it much, much lower risk than it was before. Not everyone could do this because we are actually allowing people to do things that they would not be able to do before. But the implication is if we go under, they cannot do it again. They cannot do it again, right? So, mm. it, uh, so it's, it's, it was a very big risk. And now that we are a public company, this is a much, much smaller risk. Mm. So my final question for you, and that is, where do you where do you see the company five years from now, ten years from now? Where do you see the industry? Yeah, so uh, we are making it a big, big, big point not to compete with the industry. So we have a profanity that every person in our sales force is being taught. And this is the first question that they are asking themselves when they are dealing with the customer. And this question is WTFV. Why the F Velo? <laughs> so if we cannot provide the customer a unique value proposition that no one else can do for a really high impact problem that they have, then we are very politely telling to this customer, <coughs> go and work with someone else. There's nothing we can do for you. And no one was ever fired for buying IBM. We are not the IBM of this industry. There are IBMs in our industry that have been 30 years in business that have 5,000 systems in the field, no one will ever be fired for buying them. No one will ever be fired for buying Velo because they will not buy Velo if they don't need Velo. To save their time and our time, we don't sell to these people. We are not trying to sell to these people. We are only trying to sell to people that have big problems that we can use solve, that we can solve and other people can't. By doing so, if you think what we do, we are expanding the market. We are not eating the lunch of our competitors. We are expanding the market. And because of that, we are not looking over our shoulder at what our competitors are doing. We're looking forward at allowing all those customers to develop and to adopt additive manufacturing. So where I see us as a company and the industry goes, I see a future where in five years from now, any advanced machinery, whether it's semiconductor, or a power generation turbine, or a airplane, or a rocket, or a oil and gas platform has the core of its, the heart of its operation made using 3D printing. 3D engineers are designing for 3D printing all the time, and you will be flying, you will be getting your electricity, and you'll be talking over your phone with chips that are produced and that are enabled by our manufacturing technology. This is the future that I see for ourselves. That does it for this episode of Manifest Space. Make sure you never miss a launch by searching Manifest Space wherever you get your podcasts and by following the Squawk on the Street podcast. For more on the space race, be sure to watch Squawk on the Street on CNBC. I'm Morgan Brennan. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. 
Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.